Hey leaders, it's Carrie here with a special announcement before we get into today's show. A lot of you are looking for podcasts to listen to. There's 3 million out there and our team has just launched something brand new called the Art of Leadership Network. It is a network of podcasters and includes world-class leaders dedicated to helping you live in a way today that will help you thrive tomorrow in your business and in your life. If you like this podcast, we think you are going to like the others in the network. But it's got a variety. You're going to hear from top leaders on culture, entrepreneurship, executive leadership, organizational culture, nonprofit leadership, church trends, leader resources, influencers, and even healthy living. And uh, well, it'll keep growing too. Our podcasters in the Art of Leadership Network now include Chris Cook, Jenny Catron, Brad Lominick, Jeff Henderson, Shane Benson, David Farmer, Kevin Jennings, our friends at Exponential, and Sean Morgan. And you're probably saying, great, how do I find these? Well, we got one easy spot. Go to theartofleadershipnetwork.com and that's a landing page for all of the shows inside our brand new network. Or of course, you can just search The Art of Leadership Network inside whatever podcast app you're listening to. We will have a whole lot more on The Art of Leadership coming up, but we're kicking it off with this podcast network. Yeah, there's a lot more behind The Art of Leadership. Uh, We've been working on it for a long, long time. Hope you enjoy these shows as much as we do. And now to today's episode. The Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 473 of the podcast. It's Carrie here. I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Well, this wraps up our mini future series. We've had some great episodes. The last four have all been about the future, and we covered everything from the metaverse to future trends to uh, Bitcoin to the future of fintech and online giving with Vance Rausch. And uh, today, we're going to wrap it up with Max Chafkin. Max is a a journalist. He's actually the Bloomberg Business Week editor. He's the author of an autobiography on Peter Thiel, one of Silicon Con Valley's prime movers. And we're going to talk about the unintended consequences of technology, power, politics, and tech leaders, and the silence or absence of theologians and philosophers in this space. And today's episode is brought to you by Leader. You can go to leader.com, that's L-E-A-D-R.com, and use the promo code CARRY to get 20% off your first year of their people development software. And it's brought to you by Remodel Health. You can register for their free webinar on understanding the 401k of health benefits by going to remodelhealth.com webinar. I hope you found this future series really helpful. We've gotten some great feedback on it. I personally have loved it, and we may do a little bit more on that. I know uh, I've got an episode on AI coming up, uh, not necessarily as part of a mini-series, but uh, I think this is really interesting. And to me, the more we know about it, the more we can be prepared. And there's no question that things are changing. So today's episode wraps up uh, like part five of this mini-series, but we will bounce into this subject from time to time again on the podcast. And a question for you. Did the great resignation take a toll on your team? It did on a lot of teams because the data is telling us that 50% of people either already have or still will be leaving their jobs for another one in the next 12 months. Why? Because they're looking for a workplace where they can be engaged and grow every day. And that's what Leader, 
the first people development software helps you do. It helps you engage and grow every person on your team. Leader wants to say goodbye to the great resignation and ask you to join them in the great resolution, making the care and development of your people the number one priority in 2022. HBR, the Harvard Business Review, tells us that 70% of the reason a person leaves a team or a job is because of their relationship with their manager, and Leader wants to help you with that. They believe the one-on-one meeting is the most powerful leadership development tool that a manager has, so they built a platform to help you lead effective one-on-one meetings, develop leaders at every level of your organization, and grow every person on your team. 500 churches and businesses are already using Leader for effective one-on-one meetings, You can request your demo today by going to leader.com, L-E-A-D-R.com, and use the promo code CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y. You'll get 20% off the first year of their people development software. Go to leader.com, L-E-A-D-R, use the promo code CAREY, you'll get 20% off. Also, record numbers of American employees are changing jobs for better health benefits. But with group health insurance costs going up every year, how can you possibly find something better for employees without breaking your budget. Well, the good news is that American health benefits have gone through a huge change. And even though you may not have heard about it yet, it's actually the same change that retirement health benefits went through back in the 80s when group pensions were replaced by individual 401k plans. Now, employers saved a ton of money and employees got better benefits. The great news is that the 401k of health benefits has been around and growing for over a decade. Unlike old group plans, because the style of health benefits has become so popular, it's actually gone down in cost while giving better coverage. Small organizations and enterprise groups are saving millions of dollars, and so are listeners of this podcast. So because you're a podcast listener, it probably means you love to learn, which is perfect because Remodel Health is offering a free educational webinar that will help teach you everything you need to know and understand the 401k of health benefits. Register today by going to remodelhealth.com slash webinar. Learn about this huge change. It's absolutely free. Go to remodelhealth.com slash webinar. Well, with all that said, let's dive into this fascinating conversation with Max Chafkin. Max, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me, Carrie. Yeah, yeah. This is going to be a fun conversation. So uh, I don't think I've ever had anyone from Bloomberg on before, but you cover tech for Bloomberg and have done that for a while. I'd love to know, was this just like a random assignment? Like as a journalist, it's, hey, you got tech? Or have you been interested in this from the time you were little? Well, it's uh, maybe a little of both. Um, I, uh, so I'm I'm 39 and, um, you know, kind of growing up, you know, got kind of, you know, sort of that that puts me right in the age where I was like sort of growing up just as the you know the internet was becoming a thing so I you know I remember of course remember the the world before the internet but I also um I, I got to kind of live all that change in a really um you know intimate way and um you know when I was a kid I got I was really interested in computers and I even was uh kind of clumsily like teaching myself how to code and I was like you know really really interested in 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 the internet red wired magazine and and then you know mm. When and and then uh, kind of lost interest in tech, and you know went to college and um, got interested in becoming a journalist, and wasn't particularly thinking um, about this as a as a journalistic path. Um, but then you know basically wound up at a business magazine called Inc. Um, Inc. is uh, oh, yeah. uh, basically a magazine for entrepreneurs, um, and um, 
you know, I just, I think basically because I was like the young one, they let, you know, they had me cover tech. And at the time, you know, this is like um, 2005, you know, it was kind of a nadir for Silicon Valley and for tech where, where these companies had, you know, been very hot, in, you know, in the 90s. And basically the rest of the world had sort of decided, oh my God, we were totally wrong about this. And all these businesses are sort of stupid and we got to get back to basics. Um, but of course there was still stuff happening there. So it was kind of this weird um, side thing that because I was young and junior, I got to, uh, you know, I, I got to write about or, or had to write about. And as a result, I got to spend time with all of these people who, who are now famous, you know, in, including, mm. um, you know, Elon Musk and, um, and Jack Dorsey. I mean, I remember when like Jack Dorsey was like, you know, working out of this tiny, you know, the founder of Twitter, or former CEO of Twitter, you know, working out of this kind of sad little cubicle thing. And, you know, <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and, you know, anyways, you know, so little space that like when we had the interview, it was like, you know, in some, in, in a park while he ate a burrito or, you know, and, um, <laughs> and of course, and one of those, uh, people I, I, I encountered during that time was, was Peter Thiel. Um, and I, I think I, I interviewed him the first time cause I was writing a profile of Elon Musk, who was this kind of weird guy who was, you know, starting an electric car company and, um, and it didn't seem very realistic. And he also had this rocket thing. And anyway, um, and, and and then of course fast forward at 15 years you know that little industry that was kind of a sideline um you know in 2005 and that you know was not taken very seriously you know by some of the folks you know where i worked at inc at the time and and uh and or by anyone really you know of course is now kind of this you know economic and uh you know cultural force maybe the most maybe the most important you know economic and cultural force you know, entire world. Um, and, and I think that that story of how that happened is really amazing. And it's, it's, it's kind of like what I think I'm covering, you know, both at Bloomberg and, and to some extent, you know, in this book. Hmm. Yeah. The contrarian, which is really a, a biography of Peter Thiel. Right. So, uh, and we'll get into some of that, but, but it is interesting. You know, one of the phrases that's come up over the last couple of years has been unintended consequences. So you go back to those early days, you know, Twitter. I remember, I mean, you remember it pre-Twitter, I think, 05, 06, when it was an idea and a joke and you used to have to text in your status updates. Do you remember that? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Know. That yeah, was a weird yeah. thing. No, right? no, and the big, the, big issue with, the big issue with Twitter, right, was that, you know, people didn't have unlimited texting plans. So, like, you you know, if, if you if you got too into it, you'd, you'd rack up a huge bill and... um and it would become unusable. It's kind of funny now that, you know, our feeds are just, it's like a deluge now of, of uh, information. It's kind of funny to imagine that coming through, you know, SMS. But, but yeah, that's how it was. Yeah, that is interesting. You tell your kids, you know, well, there were limits to text messages. Like I had 100 text messages included in my plan. And they're like, what are you even talking about? They have no idea, right? Which is fun. But unintended consequences. So when you go back, because now everyone's talking about big tech and the big five or the big six and, you know, the problems with that and, you know, comparisons to really what happened even a hundred and some odd years ago with the big oil companies and the antitrust suits that came up and the antitrust actions that the first Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt took, um, similar vibes today. But when you go back to those early days, did you have any inkling that this is where we would end up 17 years later? No. And and I don't think that many people who are inside the industry did. Um, and I'm sure we could go back and find 
um, you know, critics, right? Because there are always people who, you know, whatever. There, there's we live in a you know society with lots of different opinions. I'm sure there are people who are pointing it out. Um, but it's just certainly something I didn't feel because, and and I don't think you know the the folks who are now kind of at the at the eye of the storm who are being criticized, you know, really had any notion right. that this is was, this was gonna this was the trajectory. I mean, they felt like outsiders, right? And and you know they were kind of revolutionaries who were, um, and I, I would put you know Teal in this group, I would put Mark Zuckerberg in this group, or Dorsey, um, Elon Musk. You know, a lot of these folks. Um, felt like they were, you know, outsiders and they they had no power um and certainly no cultural salience or anything like that and 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 that's I think part of the reason why there was so little thought given to kind of like well is are our lives really going to be better if you know if we're spending 8 hours a day or more you know staring at a smartphone screen or are our lives going to be any better if you know we have this like you know uh you know, direct connection to the the viewpoints of, you know, hundreds of millions of people all, or, you know, billions of people all over the world. Like, so, cause I, cause really like the, the, the networks were so much smaller and, and just, it, it, it just seemed like, and I think this was, this was what was at play, right? If you, if you back then said, Hey, you know, I don't think Mark Zuckerberg, you should be, you know, growing in this kind of like imperialistic way, uh, because if you succeed, you know, you'll have 3 billion users and and you won't have enough employees to control the content that's coming out in these corners of the world that are really unstable. And you might even cause like genocides if if things get out of control. I mean, he would have I mean, I don't think he would have had any idea how to respond. You'd have been laughed out of the because room, right? because what you're describing, you know, from their point of view was success, like like having 3 billion users. It's it's hard when you when you have a tiny company and and no profits to speak of. It's it's hard to see like that really as a warning it's more like that's that's a goal and and i think that's kind of um exactly what happened and 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 i think um and i get into this some in in the book i think i think teal's uh, Peter Thiel uh, helped create this an ideology, you know, with Zuckerberg and others that kind of both made that growth possible um, in terms of in terms of creating a playbook where that sort of showed like here here's how these tech companies can grow like really quickly. Um, but of course, as I argued in the book, I think that philosophy has some um, limitations, and and in particular some some imita- limitations around ethics and around impact, which which really I don't think were considered that um, deeply at the time. Yeah, so you do talk. I mean, the contrarian, and you've you've written about this too on your beat as well for Bloomberg and other places. But um, there is this widespread conversation now that you drill down on between ideology and Silicon Valley, and it's easy to think of tech as neutral, right? And I'm I'm not sure back to unintended consequences that in the early days Zuck was thinking, oh, we're going to be a factor in a presidential election, or. Right. Um, you know, I'm going to have my politics become an issue. That was like what he did, but he was building this neutral platform. Can tech, and and let's think about this not so much as an origin, but even now, and I think you make this argument in the book, can tech be designed with ideology in mind? Well, I think there's this, uh, there's a, 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 a sort of thing you hear in Silicon Valley, and that uh, frankly has existed in the tech industry going back um like generations, right? That tech is kind of, you know, apolitical, right? And and I right. think that's a pretty comfortable place to be um if 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 you're a technologist, right? Because like because politics is messy and it, you know, it can if you're in business, it can um 
uh, of course, like lead to regulation and, and lead to you having to pay like more in taxes or being hauled in front of Congress or or whatever. Um, so th- so that's a that's a position that I think um, had certain advantages and also had some kind of like I, I think it's it's that's a nice way to see yourself. It's nice to see yourself as as building something that is sort of outside of ideology. Um, but I don't think tech. I mean, I don't think really anything can, can kind of exist in this world, you know, outside of politics and outside of ideology, because, of course, like we all bring, you know, our biases to to anything we do, um, including when we're writing software and how we design these these, you know, apps and things like that. And 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 sometimes, you know, of course, like the saying like, oh, I'm just apolitical can can be a political statement because if somebody yeah, is, yeah. Or, or, you know, if somebody is saying, hey, um, would you, you know, like to, um, you know, provide some, you know, food aid to these like poor people and you say, well, I'm apolitical, right? Like, you're, you know, that you're kind of making a political statement. Um, and I think uh, sometimes tech has done that. Um, I, I think it's really, it, it's a tricky question because, um, you know, the the notion of of technology platforms facebook and twitter and so on as these um you know bastions of free speech like it's it's really like compelling and important and i think um by creating these these big platforms um that have brought a lot of viewpoints you know onto the world like they they've done a lot of good and they've and they've you know opened uh people's eyes to things but of course like you know like there's just always going to be limits and it's hard to figure out where you like, first of all, who should be the ones to, to police the platforms? Do we, do we want to trust Facebook? Do we want to trust the government? Do we want to trust some combination of the two? And that's kind of, you know, where the rubber meets the road. And we're, we're trying to kind of figure that out. And depending on, you know, kind of like which, you know, which political persuasion you, you know, you talk to, they'll, they'll come up with different answers. But I think there's a kind of a growing awareness um, I'd say like on both sides of, of the political spectrum, at least in the United States, that like these tech companies have, have a great deal of power over, over our, over our speech and ultimately over like our ideas and, and the things that we think. And, and we probably need, you know, I, I don't know if it's, it's, it's creating limitations, but at least creating some sort of framework to think about, you know, do we want to put limits on that power? I don't know what the answer mm. to that question is. Yeah, so let's go back to, I don't think anybody really wants to, but the 2016 or 2020 election, the U.S. presidential election, power of tech did play a big role. And I think it kind of shocked everyone at the time for how big, particularly in 2016, tech played. And you cover that. So uh, the algorithm, for example, you cover in your book, like elevated certain posts above others. Uh, Then we got into censoring in 2020 uh, to massive amounts of tech money that actually poured into certain candidates. So it's not just, oh, this is my platform elevating something that may be a bot or spam or mis, you know, false news or whatever, fake news. But then you've also got, you say, you know, Peter Thiel really being the contrarian conservative ideologue in Silicon Valley, getting behind Donald Trump, et cetera. You know, talk about how those influences converge because I think all of us were taken by surprise by it, at least the first time around. Yeah, and I certainly was. Um, yeah. The um, so there there's sort of two dimensions to this. Um, one is you know t- these uh, technologies as 
distribution platforms for ideas, right? And and the the sort of shift of campaigning from being something that's playing out in 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 mass media and and canvassing and things like that to and of course those things are still important, but there's this new um, there's this new thing uh, called social media that um, I think a lot of people became much more keenly aware of in 2016 in the aftermath. Now the the funny thing is right, um, Trump. I think used social media very, you know, in, in a very effective way. Trump and his supporters, yeah. and I think astutely, yeah, a hundred percent. And and they both, both in terms of like how they literally were using it, and how Trump was communicating, and his tweets, and you know, there are aspects of his personality that I think were sort of perfectly. Um, sort of pitched to that thing. And, and there was also an ability to sort of read the room or, you know, just a lot of like real combination of, I think, creativity um, and uh, and good timing. Um, but the funny thing is like, uh, you know, you go back four years earlier, um, Obama, at, all, the Obama campaign actually pioneered a lot of the techniques that Trump that Trump's campaign ended up using the the kind of like micro targeting and 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 the and this this attempt to like slice and dice audiences and be able to target messages to specific people um that stuff was kind of in the water i think i think trump was just kind of um using a lot of these tactics that had already been developed but then uh, putting on top of that um just just a personality and a persona and kind of an understanding of the medium that that maybe obama and his um and his folks like didn't didn't quite have now, and that's a tech story, and and that's one where I think, um, you know, Trump and also Trump's ability, um, with the help of folks like Peter Thiel, to push Facebook and 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 the social media outlets to to you know regulate speech in the way they wanted it to be regulated played a role, but but a lot of 2016 I think was was also just a more conventional campaign. It was just a it was a campaign where we had some new power players. So you know. Mm. Um, in a lot, like I think, I think you know, social media played a role, but I think the tech industry, and in particular, Teal, um, played a role in helping Trump um, be seen as competent and and you know, and a worthy candidate at a time when you know, even when among Republicans, like he was this you know outsider, and there were all these never Trumpers, you know, um, back in. So, so the the way that I got interested in this is that is that Teal, you know, stands up in the summer of 2016 and endorses uh, Trump for president in prime time. You know, right right before Trump delivers his remarks at, at the RNC, and and to those of us like following tech, and in fact, to a lot of friends of you know people who were friends with Peter Teal who had followed him for a long time, it was crazy because you know the tech industry was in so many ways, you know, 180 degrees from Donald Trump, right? Peter Thiel is a is somebody who's like super interested in the future. He's a futurist. He wants to make things happen faster, you know, sooner now. He's an immigrant. Um he's gay. Um and and he's and he's backing a candidate, right, who is in some ways hostile to all of those things. I mean, Trump hmm. ran kind of as a reactionary, right? Where we want to make things like, you know, the way they were, uh, you know, before, you know, the Democrats or whatever ruined the country. And, and um, you know, and, 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 and of course he ran as this kind of like, you know, a hardline immigration candidate, um, which again, totally 180 degrees from kind of what conventional wisdom was in Silicon Valley. And so I think Teal's, endorsement, you know, was surprising and, and, and also made a lot of people, 
um, maybe think a little bit differently about Trump. You know, when mm-hmm. I talked to folks in the in the Trump campaign while I was working on this book, you know, th- they found Teal was really valuable to them because they did not have a lot of kind of like mainstream business uh, folks who were supporting Trump's campaign, right? It was a lot of like Trump had some business leaders, but they tended to be kind of from the real estate world or entertainment or or these areas that are not necessarily seen as the most like reputable. You know, not a lot of like card carrying Davos attendees were backing yeah. Trump at that point. And here's Peter Thiel, who is both you know very conservative, but also totally in that club, right? He is he is on the Facebook board. He's somebody who built this kind of like new economy and he's saying Trump is okay. And I think that made that that made a huge difference. And then the other thing that happened, you know, at the RNC that I think was pretty significant is, you know, Teal g- gave a speech where he talked about um, you know, c- going back to the future and and you know, kind of endorsing Trump's um, you know, like I said, reactionary uh, vision. Um, but he also said, you know, I, I, you know, I'm proud to be gay and I'm proud to be an American. And um, that was uh, Teal. Somebody's like really private, so that was a kind of a big deal for him, I think, personally. But it was also a big deal for the Republican Party. That was the first time, you know, at a at a Republican convention, you know, somebody had done that. And and he didn't. Teal didn't get booed. It wasn't awkward. They all cheered. And and so mm. I think it it created this. Um, sense. Uh, now, however fleeting, I think a lot of these folks ended up being pretty disappointed in Trump in the long run, but that that Trump um, maybe wasn't as polarizing as as kind of he was being presented and that he also was maybe more competent than he was being presented. So, and so I think like those things, which are those are just more like old school, kind of like conventional, you know, power, money, politics stuff also played a role in addition to the like algorithmic, you know, micro targeting um, dimension of, of the election. Well, it almost feels like the early 20th century, you know, the robber baron era, where you had guys like Henry Ford and uh, Rockefeller and Carnegie who would lobby Washington, but were also subject to regulation. And it almost feels like we're in that moment again, right? Where the very people like, you know, Zuckerberg, Zuck gets subpoenaed to Congress and he has to testify and Jack Dorsey does and I'm sure Peter Thiel has at one point or another. And you're in that. and But that hasn't really happened in our lifetime at the level it's happening now, at least not in my lifetime. Am I missing something? Or are no, we just I, in I, one of those eras? I, where, no, I think you're, yeah. I mean, and, yeah. and there have been books written about this that, um, you know, people have compared. I think it's Tim Wu, you know, wrote a book of comparing the... Um, you know, the, the response to the telecom monopoly to, to the mm-hmm. internet, right? Where, and I think that's, you know, probably a good analogy. And, and, and kind of in, in that view, right, there's eventually going to be, uh, basically the government will eventually kind of uh, defang these big tech companies and that'll eventually allow for a new generation of, of players to, to come on the scene. And I, I think that's, um, you know, if you if you want to live in a pluralistic world with competition and stuff, um, then I think that's what you know what we'd probably be hoping for, right? Is that in the long run, um, these big companies will will face real competition, um, upstarts that will challenge them in some way that we cannot um, devise or whatever. But I do think you know that that kind of modern robber baron analogy is pretty useful, and and I also think it's probably important to say that you know. A lot of these tech guys have a view of monopoly that is pretty out of like the mainstream, at least how, out of how like mainstream capitalists, uh, citizens and capitalist democracies. How do so? It. How's it well, different? So, so Teal wrote a, a wrote a book, you know, um, called uh, 
called Zero to One, and it's it's basically like a business book, but but it also has you know uh, people who are fans of his you know read you know sort of deep meaning into it. It's 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 a really you know kind of is a business book that maybe depending on your point of view doubles as kind of like a life philosophy um, type thing. Um, but in the book, you know, he argues that tech companies are sort of different from other businesses in that, you know, they are network businesses. And with a network business, basically you have a winner and and everybody else, right? You like you can't have a million different Facebooks because there's gonna be one network that's go that mm. is ultimately gonna win. And therefore, you know, the goal of these companies is monopoly. And 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 that, you know, anyone who says otherwise is just a phony or a liar or something else like that. And I think that that you know, and and like there are different ways you could read that. Like maybe he's maybe that's like a subtle critique of these companies. He's sort of saying the quiet part out loud. But either way, like I think that Zuckerberg um, and, and many of these other companies have really, you know, explicitly sought monopoly. And and I think that's something that, you know, maybe hasn't happened for, for a long time. Although I think from like the Peter Thiel view, he would just sort of say, well, we, all all business leaders have been doing that. They just haven't been like willing to admit it. Um, but I think we have to figure out a way, especially with tech, to, to if you want to have competition, you have to find a way to somehow undermine that. Because, because the observation from Thiel that like, that these are networks and they're dominated by a single player, um, it feels like it's factually true. So it, it may require either new tech or some kind of novel regulations to, to kind of get around that. Yeah, well, I, I think you're right. I'm sure they're not the first business people to think monopoly, but nobody has really achieved that in our lifetime. This has been, right. you know, I grew up in an era where they were unbundling all that stuff, where they were deregulating it, where there was power. And this is this is sort of, you know, become unbridled. And now it's impacting all of us. What do you, because I want to get on to other aspects of tech, but, you know, when you think there's another election right around the corner, there always is, right? Sadly. Yeah. Um, how much do you think elections are impacted by algorithms and that kind of thing, based on your perspective as a reporter from what you've seen? And, and obviously a lot of deep research. Like, to what extent do you think there is, I don't know whether the question is a bias, but just, you know, clearly this is a factor, but how would you define that? I think that um, we still have free will, thankfully. <laughs> and and <laughs> we still have agency. And, 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 while, and yeah. while, like, you know, while there is, like, I, I, I do think these technologies, uh, Facebook in particular, um, you know, have prospect to, you know, affect people and influence people in in ways that are profound and important. And, you know, it's people talk about, you know, it's kind of like a mind control machine or something like, right, like, like they they might they help shape our perceptions. Um, but of course, you know, mass media has done that, too. So, like, I don't know yeah. how different that is. Um, but what I do think is that because these tools are very powerful and because the companies that are running them do not really seem to have their arms around that power like that creates a lot of potential for manipulation and and mm. like and and I think that's what is kind of troubling when you look at the history of you know 2016 and 2020 right where it's it was kind of clear even in 2016 even before the election that there were sort of bad actors and there was kind of like junky you know I, you know the the term fake news right has become um you know it's like i don't know it's sort of like a radioactive word but 
But anyway, there was there was yeah. a false news and 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 you know basically lies that were 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 being pushed across the platform and and like many people believed them, and that the company. Facebook kind of responded right by like denying it and kind of like, you know, just like slow walking like any criticism and any scrutiny. And that's kind of happened over and over again over the last five mm. years. And I think the result of that is it just creates like vulnerabilities where we're like somebody where somebody who is either smart enough um, or kind of like unethical enough um, uh, or yeah, can can kind of potentially manipulate these platforms in ways that like we don't understand. And then you have situations um, like, you know, where you have this like, just talk about what's going on today. I mean, you have this gigantic, you know, anti-vax movement amid a public health, um, you know, amid a public health emergency, or you have, you know, QAnon, you know, r- you know, rising, uh, you know, at a time when the election is kind of like under, under dispute or whatever. Like, I just think it creates a lot of, it creates a lot of uncertainty and, and undermines trust and things like that in a bad way. But like, I don't think we're, we are enthralled to these, um, these um, platforms. And I, I don't think we should mystify them and ascribe like more power to them than they, they actually have. I mean, they, they're, they're, they're like information platforms, just like the mass media. Although unlike the mass media, they're basically totally unregulated. Um, and so you can get really funky stuff. Yeah. Well, we could spend a lot of time there. I think I'm going to move on. I want to talk to you about some of the things you cover in the book and then some general questions about tech in the future because we have a lot of leaders who are navigating tech right now. And we all have opinions about it, but you cover growth hacking in the book. And that was something Peter Thiel is one of the co-founders of PayPal. And you talk about growth hacking. What is that as a concept and what are the dangers, if any? Yeah. So, I mean, that it's basically the idea that, and this started really with PayPal, um, and a, mm. and uh, there, there are probably stories you could tell where there are other companies that had that similar kind of growth trajectory. But, but right at this time, the early web, right, you had companies that were growing, you know, quote unquote virally. So, so with PayPal, right, like the way it worked is you would, um, you know, open an account and they would give you ten dollars. Uh, in your PayPal account of real money and, and $10 uh, to refer somebody else. So you could get $20 in, in real money that you could use to, you know, buy stuff on eBay. Um, and and that created this, um, you know, incentive for people to both to encourage their friends to sign up and also um, anytime somebody pays for something with PayPal, that creates a further incentive for somebody to sign up. So you have, you, have, you know, quote unquote mm-hmm. viral growth. And basically starting there, um, you, you know, Basically, businesses were able to grow much more quickly than businesses had ever been able to grow any time in human history. Um, investors saw that as really valuable, and the and inevitably, right, you have all these like engineers who are into optimizing things. Um, try to find ways to kind of goose that and grow even faster. And that's growth hacking. All it means is just like doing something to make it grow faster. Um, but of course this can like very quickly lead you into kind of like ethical things and, and, and growth hacking often implies like not necessarily anything that's like, you know, super evil or anything, but it's more like, you know, it's like try, incentives, right? Trying it's incentives. to manipulate Google to like send more customers your way or try. Yeah. Like, yeah. Manipulating incentives. And, and often you have companies that are kind of like these, 
um, smaller players that are sort of trying to find little tricks to like to either draft off a bigger player and steal their customers or or whatever. And and that's and that is growth hacking. And there are sort of like really benign versions of that, and maybe more like malignant versions of that, where 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 companies in the past have gotten into spam, right? They like you know buy a big list of emails and, and like sign everybody up for your email list. Like that would be bad. Um, but I think the what I think is kind of um, the the reason I I talk about it in the book and the reason I think it's important is like that ethic of just like let's grow as fast as we can as quickly as we can you know um, uh, sort of norms and, so, and and ethics and so on be damned that um, I think is maybe okay when we're talking about a tiny company and it starts to get a little bit terrifying when when it's playing out you know at the scale of a bigger company or like a startup. Um, that is backed by like billions of dollars in, you know, like foreign money or something. Like, so like, you know, Uber, right, was like a startup that I think was doing growth hacking, right? And I think there were times where they, you know, clearly like crossed, where they had, you know, all this, you know, money from from investors. I mean, I, I said foreign money. It's like a combination, right, of US money and mm-hmm. money from SoftBank and so on. But um, yeah, yeah. But but anyway, they, they're like spending just enormous sums of money to acquire a user base and along the way, you know, breaking, you know, laws in like cities or, you know, around the, around the world and, um, you know, undercutting, um, you know, of course, like taxi medallion owners, but also workers and, and like, it just, it just has the potential, right. To like mess up the world in ways that you don't anticipate. And so I think like with a lot of these, um, a lot of the kind of like Silicon Valley playbook, um, and that's the playbook that I think Teal developed. I think like it, it is, it's not like inherently bad or anything like that. It's just, and in fact, you can sort of see why it's useful to an entrepreneur or a leader, you know, at a relatively early stage. Like, I think we kind of all agree that, you know, entrepreneurs, Somebody who's a startup, business, small business owner, maybe doesn't need to like cross every T and dot every I. Like, or maybe we can forgive them for that, right? Mm. But like, when it when it when it plays out across a company like Facebook, right, which is has you know three billion users and you know one point five trillion dollars in uh, market value, and you know is like the biggest media platform in the history of the world, um, then it starts to get a little bit. Um, a little bit scarier, at least scary to me. And and I think and and or or just has more potential to cause um disruption, right? And then of course, like there there's some people who see that disruption as a as a good thing. And that's kind of that's the uh Facebook philosophy, right? You know, that's when when they talked about, you know, move fast and break things. That's the Facebook motto. Um, that is, you know, that's basically saying, like, you know, the world's messed up. And, and we're going to, we're going to break stuff, but, but the thing that the thing we make in its place is going to be better. And I think that's kind of like Teal's view, right? Teal thinks that like, you know, institutionally, like things are, things are a mess. And like, you know, if, if, if we have to break a few eggs, like along the way, we're going to create a better future. And I think that that view, you know, of course I can understand why people feel that way, but I mean, but that view of course can it can very quickly, um, you know, kind of spin out of control and, and, and can create a, a, an ethical framework that makes almost anything possible. Well, it's one of those things where I can see, you know, and I, you know, as a person who takes, and I'm sure you do too, ethics very seriously, I'd want to think about any growth hacking and make sure it kind of passes a test. But you're right, something intuitive about it making sense in the startup days. But again, when you have 3 billion users, like, are you still growth hacking? Because there is a natural life cycle to a company, right? right? And we all think our companies are going to last 
forever and ever and ever. But there is this tremendous appetite for growth. And church leaders feel it, Max. Um, business leaders feel it, where we're like, if we're not growing, we're dying. And, you know, it's a really good check, I think, in our conscience to say, okay, but are the methods sustainable? Are the methods ethical? Are they fair to society? Which leads me, you know, to another question. Uh, actually, I'm going to hang on to that question. I want to go to surveillance capitalism. So that is something you raise in the book. One of the companies that uh, Teal started is a surveillance technology company. It sounds very big brotherish, but I mean, I listen to Yavel Harari and look at some of the stuff that he's written. And I mean, we'll talk about AI and, and that, but do you want to just define for us what surveillance technology is and then right. what the implications are? We're in it already. We probably don't <laughs> even realize that we're in it. But like, what is this part of the matrix that we're yeah, talking about? Yeah, indeed. So, okay, so there are a couple of different things. I mean, Palantir is a defense contractor, primarily. Sure. Although they do some work. Uh, so they primar they're primarily, you know, working with U.S. government and, and U.S. allies. Um, and, uh, but they also do some corporate work. And like, the main thing they do is data mining. So, and that can be, you know as um that could be very mundane right that did that's just like let's look up some information that's buried in in our database and and a lot of what palantir does you know is super mundane right it's like companies that like need to protect need to project like how many you know widgets they're going to need in q2 or, or something like that right and so you you look you you gather all this data which is maybe in, in a bunch of different places and you write some you know some software palantir will you know help you figure out what software to write and charge you, you know, <laughs> handsomely for that. And then, and then hopefully like create a situation where like you can do better at projecting your, you know, your demand or supply or whatever. And like, all right, that's like the mundane version of it. And, and I think that, and, and, and then there's like, um, a version of data mine that, that mining that starts to get like creepy and it, and it can actually get pretty creepy pretty quickly because of course, like we're creating, you know, a huge amount of data about ourselves and our loved ones all the time. Um, you know, there, there's uh, there was a really great uh, story written in the New York Times years ago, Times Magazine, about how Target, you know, could predict who is pregnant um, based on their their shopping habits, right? Which sounds kind of crazy, um, but of course it's obvious, right? Because if you're pregnant, you're buying diapers, you're buying diaper cream, you're, you're or yeah. whatever, you know, maternity clothes, and 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 yet that that's like really personal. I mean, and 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 there are lots of things that are very personal that we are kind of like unwittingly disclosing to you know uh, to to the you know to to companies on the internet all the time you know um i i have a gmail account right gmail has you know all of my you know emails from the last 20 years and it's this like you know if if you knew what you're doing right you could not just you wouldn't just know like who i sent emails to you could develop like a very sophisticated uh, portrait of my psyche and you know you say when I was oh, depressed yeah. and right I mean and and so it's like every everything I'm ashamed of is in there every embarrassment is in there my deepest hopes my deepest dreams you know and so on and so that can be of course that can be um it could be used by the government right and 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 some and and there's the prospect that that the date that data mining could be a used could be used in a way that would violate um people's civil rights um but it could and it could also be kind of monetized right and that's where now now this i'm going to move away from palantir for a second and you know that's and that's the critique of say facebook or something like that where where they're um 
gathering these like deep emotional and and psychological profiles of us and effectively selling that to to advertisers and i think that makes people you know feel uncomfortable um and 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 i think rightfully uncomfortable and and i think there's there's the kind of civil rights question which is like okay like how should we should we you know find a way to like manage how much data uh, companies can get should we find a way to manage how much data the government can get cuz right a lot of the t- a lot of this stuff especially with palantir palantir's is writing software that you know the government is is the one you know that would be potentially using it and so they're you know they're both actors in this um but then there's also like maybe the deeper and I, mean, I think this is maybe probably just as important like what it does to us on an emotional and psychological level to live in a world where we're always being watched. And like, and that I think is what's kind of scary about a lot of this stuff. It's, it's not that like the CIA is going to read my Gmail. It's that maybe like, I won't write the thing that I really want to write to, to, to my wife or to my kids or, or on my computer, right? Like just on my own, you know, because I'm afraid, because I'm afraid that somebody's going to read it. And like, and that, and that is pretty insidious. And like, when you, you know, people who talk about what it's like to live in totalitarian societies, like that's what they talk about. It's that it's that you stop being free, like your thinking isn't even free because you're afraid. To exp- and and so that's the that's the fear, right? That like when we when when comp- when we give companies all of this data, and when we create um you know ways for them to use it and permission structures where it's okay if they use it, like we're not just um you know violating privacy or whatever but we're like taking we're like giving up a little piece of ourselves and 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 so mm. so anyway um teal has played a big role in that and and of course zuckerberg has played a role in that um but as i talk about in the book um you know there's you know in some ways there's been sort of a backlash to that and 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 teal despite having played this big role in in developing this world has also criticized it at times so so i think there's um I think there's certainly like potential for for criticism and for um you know and 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 reform possibly. A couple of questions popping out of that. One is you know most of the people who listen to this podcast are content creators or business leaders in some way or the other and all of us want to know more about the people we serve, the people in our church, the people who eat at our restaurant, who work out at our gym, who buy cars from us, who you know sell homes through our company, whatever our business happens to be. We're very interested in getting to know our clients better, partly mixed motives. Number one, we can serve them better. But number two, we might also grow and become more profitable, et cetera. But I think you make the argument, like I used to do polls when I was preaching regularly, and I would just say through SurveyMonkey, hey, what are you struggling with? And then I would bring those ideas into the message. And you know, I think I'm a better pastor as a result. Is there, in your view, an ethical line about where you draw it? I know that's like an unanswerable question, but I'd just like you to to play in that for a moment and say, like, where is the line on that? Because we've all had the experience. It's like, you know, hey, I wonder if we should buy a new car. And then you're like, oh, I don't want to see car ads on my phone. I just said that out loud. Are they actually listening? Are they not listening? Or you Google new cars and next thing you know, all the ads are about new cars. And you're like, leave me alone. Like, where is that line? Well, I mean, I think as I think the for me and and I'm not like totally against all of these technologies. I think they've, um, as you say, like they've they've made things better and and there are things mm-hmm. that were are possible today. Um, you know, thanks to social media and thanks to um, thanks to data mining, frankly, that that like weren't possible. So it's not like it's not like all this stuff should go away, or I don't think we'd be better for it. But I just think that if when consumers 
understand what's going on. Like that's a pretty good mm. and not understand because like it's buried in point thirty five of a four hundred page, you know, privacy policy that literally no one reads, but understand it on an intuitive level when they're using the service that that this is what's happening. Like I think that's that's the line. And and if a regular person would would be confused or would feel violated if you explained it to them, then I think you're doing something unethical and you should you should do it different. And I think a lot of um, a lot of tech companies have basically, you know, failed that test and 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 failed it over and over and over again. Um, and but but again, like there there are best practices. You know, people talk about you know opt out versus opt in. Like this is like a really simple one, right? If you're going to ask somebody to give up a little bit of their privacy, they should have to make that active choice. It shouldn't just you shouldn't it shouldn't be like I can choose to be private. You should be choosing to to be public. And and yeah. again, like that's something that you know all these tech companies did not do initially, right? They, they, it's, it was always like opt out rather than opt in. But that's something that you see kind of like best practice um, type thing. Um, and I just think like privacy policies that are simple, that regular people can understand, explaining to people how their information is going to be used. And I mean, clearly, like this is not easy because the, the European Union, of course, has like created this structure around cookies that we're now kind of like uh, uh, we're all uh, we all Every have to sort of you visit, do it, do, like, except hey. cookies. Right. Yeah. And it's so confusing. And and like, obviously, that hasn't that doesn't get there. I do think like some of the things that Apple has done around there, um, now of course there are a lot of people have a lot of reasons to criticize Apple, and I, you know, I, we could talk about that. I mean, I don't, they're not definitely not beyond reproach, but I think like the way that they are communicating around privacy is smart, where like you're using the app and they're and and this is Apple, I think, forcing the companies to do this, and the, you know they're they're saying, hey, you're being tracked outside of this app. Do you want that to happen? And um and and so and and you know forcing comp forcing these app developers to adopt um better privacy standards and stuff like that. I think that's you know pretty good. And I and I just think it's it's really just a question of like, would a regular person understand it and think think it's okay? And if the answer is yes, then you're probably you know on the right side of things. Yeah, as a consumer. <laughs> You know, I've I've asked this question myself because I run a digital company and we do a lot of things that you're talking about, right? That's how I connect with people. Email, text, podcasting, et cetera. And hopefully, you know, on my good days, I have a genuine heart to serve. I hope most of my days are good days. Like that's why I'm doing this at this stage of my life. But, you know, you also think I'm just tired of being tracked. There is no opting out though, right? Like uh, I know one guy who had friend of mine who's not very tacky, has like a phone and that's about it, ended up with someone else on his mortgage because you're in some public database somewhere. I mean, short of living in the woods off the grid with no technology, we're probably all in this somehow, right? A hundred percent. And and I yeah. mean, and and to get out of it, as you as the question implies, right, you have to go so far, you know, like, like, you don't want to like miss out on pictures of your grandchildren. Like you don't want to, <laughs> like, I don't want to, I've got young children and like, you know, the, the school shares pictures, you know, I, I want, I want to see those pictures. Like I, you know, and, and, and so like we, you know, I think the technologies um, themselves are unavoidable and, and what we can do is um, basically protect ourselves. Like this mm. is kind of like personal, like, you know, approaching 
things that we see on social media with skepticism and, and all that. And of course, there are companies out there that are that that are more privacy forward. So there's Signal, you know, it's a messaging platform that um, competes with, uh, you know, Facebook and 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 so on. And 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 Signal is a it's a nonprofit. They don't have ads. There, you know, there there are. Um, I use an email provider, you know, in addition to Gmail called Helm. That you know is another one of these kind of like privacy forward companies. So like there are, this is like a, a market need. Um, and, and there are companies that, that are meeting it, but like, there's no, there's no getting out of it. And I mean, that's what actually makes it this, this thing so hard to regulate because, and that's why like, uh, you know, I don't really know people talk about like, Oh, well the, you know, we're the society, there's a backlash against tech companies and, and regulations coming. It's not really clear what they would do because, because, um, you know, Facebook, for instance, is just so embedded. It owns the, you know, three biggest messaging platforms. It's it's like, I don't know what how you how you regulate it in a way that kind of undoes the the stuff that makes people uncomfortable. So I think there's uh, but there are probably things you can do. And then there are of course things you can do as a consumer. You can choose choose to use uh services that are are better on privacy than others. Which leads us to the heart of the dilemma. I mean, I have followed tech for years and it's just, I don't know, a passion hobby of mine, lots of devices, et cetera. Um, but one of the things that's hit me, particularly around the subject of AI, there's so many ethical questions, so many philosophical, and I would suggest theological questions around AI and technology. And I'm seeing a few philosophers, but I'm not seeing a ton of theologians weighing in on this space. And a good example, I forget what podcast it was. It might have been Tim Ferriss. It was, no, it was something else, but I almost never miss a Tim Ferriss episode, but it was about like self-driving cars. And imagine, I think it was Tristan Harris was being interviewed. And imagine in your new EV, your electric vehicle, you have this, this mode and you have to choose on setup when you're setting up your car. Do you choose altruist mode? Or do you choose selfish mode? Altruist is, you know, the classic, there's an 80-year-old lady crossing the street. Do you kill her and save your family? Or do you sacrifice your family and save her? I mean, those are really great questions. And right now, human beings are making those questions. And most of us would probably choose selfish mode as much as we know the correct answer is save the sweet old lady. Um, but you might have to program that into your car. And Right. Conversations like that. That's a real simple version of some very complex issues. I would love to know like how many philosophers, theologians are making these decisions, how many engineers are making these decisions and business people. Like it's just to me, there's just a void. I don't know, Max, I mean, what do you think? Zero. <laughs> zero, zero philosophers. Zero philosophers. Theologians. I don't know. I hope oh. I wish I think it would be really good if there were a few. And I'm 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 probably wrong, right? Uh, because well, um, you've done a deep dive. Well, there's so much money, you know, sloshing around uh, tech companies that I think some of them like do have like chief philosophers and things like that. Although, although I'm not sure like how much um, uh, sway they have. And like in the case of Tristan right. Harris, right, he was like, I think his job was like some digital ethics. ethicist. Yeah, he was yeah, the right. But like the whole point yeah. is no one listened to him. Uh, so, so there's so the question there's the question of like are do are these people around? And I think they are. Um, and and like when the rubber meets the road. Uh, sorry about the metaphor, you know, do we listen mm. to them? And I think the answer um, right now is no, unfortunately. And I, and I think that, um, and that's kind of, uh, you know, that's what's, you know, kind of 
depressing and and you know maddening about you know following a lot of these companies is that you know they they have acquired a lot of power they're, they're minted you know, making more money than you know any you know company and you know the like you know than any company in history and 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 yet they're a lot of times seem to be making decisions that are really focused on kind of like short term you know bottom line stuff um i do think these are hard questions though i mean you know mm. there's um, this this thing you're talking about with with uh, self driving cars, right? It's playing out with Tesla right now, where mm. Tesla has um, put um, this kind of very early, you know, quote they call it self driving, but it's kind of like a driver assist system, and the driver assist system has made some mistakes, and 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 people have died, and the company has argued, you know, well, like the, you know, getting to you know, full self-driving mode is ultimately going to save a lot of people's lives. So therefore, you know, it's worth it. And I think that that's like, a, you know, I, I mean, I don't like that's, it's kind of weird, right? That that decision is being made just like by a par- private company and, and, and like you said, by some engineers. And, um, and I do think there is a feeling like a lot of these um, technologists uh, for most of my, the time that I've been following the tech industry, it's, it was very fashionable to like, and and continues to be fashionable to like dis liberal arts majors or whatever, like, mm. you know, and, and dis people who read, you know, philosophy or, re, you know, or like, you know, there's nothing to be learned from, uh, from, from, from being a humanities major. And of course, um, you know, uh, the, the, the comeback or, you know, a, a counterpoint is that, you know, uh, I think we could probably benefit from some of that thinking and that, and, and, and one of the, like, it would, it would have been great if Mark Zuckerberg had just like taken a few more art history classes, you know, <laughs> I know, I know that he doesn't feel that way, but like, um, I, I don't know, you're sort of tempted to, 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 to say something like that. I also like, I would push back on the idea that we would, most people would choose the, um, you know, the kill the old lady mode. And I think yeah. that- Oh, I that, don't think you could if it's is, explicit. Right. And I think that, and I think like that, that is actually kind of like one of the dangers of AI is that like it, it brings like kind of cold, like that I, what, what I, I guess what I'm saying is that I think a lot of us, if we were confronted with an ethical dilemma in real time, we'll make the correct decision. And, and like if we, and, and there's a, there's a risk in giving that power to an AI or to a, a piece of software um, that kind of assumes things about human nature that, that aren't necessarily true. And I, I don't know, I, I, like I, I'm uncomfortable with the idea of, yeah, uh, uh, whatever, that choice. And, and, uh, and I would hope that, you know, we would trust that, that people would make good decisions. Well, I, I would think, like to take yeah. the altruist mode and I think <laughs> I would, um, but you don't know, right? Like in the instant, yeah. it's funny, you're, you're, you're bringing to mind something that happened to me years ago. Uh, yeah, when there was no technology in cars, it was basically an engine. So this is in the 90s. I'm driving to seminary with my wife. She is eight months pregnant. It's winter. We're north of Toronto. Traffic's a mess. So we're taking some side roads. I go down this really big hill and I see a school bus stopping in front of me. I'm way back there. And I start, um, I touch the brakes and all of a sudden I realize, oh, this is not stopping. And all of a sudden, I see the school bus in front of me. So it's two lane road. I see the school bus in front of me. I'm like, if I hit that, I could hurt school children. I see a transport truck coming fast up the hill, trying to make it up the hill. If I cross into the opposite lane, I'm going to hit a transport head on. There's already, I think it was a Camaro off to the side of the road on the right. I'm like, who do I hit? 
And finally, I'm like, okay, I'm going to make for the left ditch. So I veer in front of the transport truck, intentionally put my car into the left ditch, and we clear it, and the transport misses the mirror on my wife's side of the car by about an inch. She's still terrified. But it was like instant ethics, right? And I'm like, what do I do? And it's like transport truck, school bus, car, pregnant wife, one empty lane. And I don't know, it was so fast. It happened in like two seconds. And fortunately, that was the right decision in the mode. But like, we are programming that stuff into cars right now. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and and everything else, you know, in, in our technology. And it's just, it's fascinating to me. And, and to be honest, as somebody who's on the inside of the church, I would hope we have theologians who can speak into that, but I don't know that we do. And it's like, guys, we better study hard. Like, this is this is really big stuff. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, I, and, I, and I do think that, you know, some of this is just like natural like development where this was an industry that, as I said, was kind of, you know, uh, sort of on the side of everything. They were a bunch of radicals, you know, overturning the system. And and I, I do think that, you know, they they will slowly, hopefully, um, you know, bring more of that thinking uh, into into the design of their products. And I think people, you know, like Tristan Harris and others, you know, hopefully are part of that and part at least, yeah. you know, part of like getting that conversation going. Oh, that's good. Okay, let's talk about AI. Uh, and again, whole other podcast, whole other books, blah, blah, blah. But I'd love your view based on, you know, 15, 20 years of, of studying this. Um, benevolent or malevolent view of AI? I mean, I I think that it's important not to like give these technology, make these technologies more mystical than yeah. they actually are. And I think that, I think that AI... Uh, is scary and could be it could be malevolent and it it, it could be you know whatever i'm like i i i have I have all the same concerns that a lot of people who are worried about AI, you know, Peter Thiel is a big AI skeptic, right? He talks about how basically AI is totalitarian. Like you get so this, Elon you get a Musk, world. very yeah, skeptical. Yeah. yeah, and for a different reason. Because like, so Thiel's sort of worried that AI will turn us into like communist China or something. And Elon Musk is worried that um, that the AI will like try to, you know, s- solve the spam problem and, and just decide to, to murder the all of humanity to do it. Or, or you know, make some kind of like fool decision that's based on like a very narrowly you know assessed goal or something like that um but i mean i mean i think that like we tend to um kind of like overrate the potential of like the most extreme things to ha- that are going to happen and then kind of like underrate like the smaller you know um ways in which like it could potentially help us or or, or potentially hurt us and, and i think like when we talk about you know artificial general intelligence like i think that stuff is like really a long way away. And, and, and I know there are people who will say um, other things and, and, but I mean, I think like you really have to make some pretty big leaps um, in terms of like our understanding of how like the brain works and things like leaps that haven't happened yet. Um, And, but I do think that AI is kind of dangerous in 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 a more like immediate way in that it, it ends up like kind of amplifying the worst um, human impulses. So, mm. you know, you, you design an AI algorithm that's that's like, you think of an AI algorithm as being like a neutral thing, but, a, but an AI algorithm is just going to reflect, you know, the biases of that we all bring to it. And so you worry, right, that we end up, that, that like, let's say we just, um, 
let's AI is playing a bigger role in hiring right now. You know, mm-hmm. like people, big companies use it to like filter, you know, who they're going to interview and to assess candidates and things like that. Um, you know, if you just took a snapshot of like of how of where we are now and gave it to an AI and had the AI make all the like that would be bad, right? Because we would sort of we would sort of like bake in all our biases. You you would think it would be meritocratic, but it wouldn't be. It would just be whatever biases we brought to it, you know, today. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think like we just have to be um both skeptical of skeptical of AI's like of the capabilities of software because software really just like reflects the people who wrote it. Um and um and I think but also like not be like overly um you know panicky either because like mm. again like the the kind of like doomsday scenarios are are pretty I think are pretty remote and and maybe a little bit overhyped. Well, and Eric Schmidt and Henry Kissinger and people like that have a far more benevolent view of AI. They don't see it as the threat that other people do, which is interesting and some of the well, good that it's doing I, in the I world. I find that yeah, and I find honestly like they're what they're saying to be pretty a little bit scary, quite frankly, because you know their 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 argument that the Schmidt argument is sort of like um, uh, AI, like China is doing all this stuff with data, and it's like creating this like you know crazy AI enabled society, and so to compete with China and make sure we don't turn into them, we need to invest in our own AI and data mining and things like that. And it, and it, to me, it feels like an argument that's like we like this thing is so dangerous that we need to become just like it. And I and like mm. that I think is really. Um, is weird and 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 um and just raise a lot of red flags for me. No, like if, I hear. If you I think hear that data saying. mining is scary. Then I don't think the answer is more data mining. And that's kind of what Eric Schmidt is. I mean, maybe I'm uh, maybe I'm being unfair to him, but I, I kind of no, think that's that's, that's a, the argument. That's a fair interpretation. On the other hand, if you look at what AI can do, not AGI, but AI can do right. in terms of um, you know drug development, for example, hmm. right? And my wife's oh, a pharmacist. Absolutely. And yeah. so generally what's speaking, and here's the simple example, I don't have a medical background, right? But you go into a lab, we're going to try to, you know, play with these proteins and this sequence and four o'clock rolls around, you've accomplished nothing except you know this doesn't work. And yeah. AI can go through that so quickly. And they've actually now got medications to market that are AI enhanced. I mean, even my writing Grammarly, if you're wondering what AI is, that's Grammarly. If you use Grammarly... Right. It's like, it gives me a little report card on my tone every week. It's like, you were frustrated this week or you were happy this week or whatever. I mean, so it's, 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 Oh God, around. that is horrifying. I guess as a it writer, is, it I is horrifying, isn't it? <laughs> I but, mean, but you know, it's funny. I, sometimes I think a lot of this stuff, you know, when we, when we call it AI, yeah. we're like, you could just call it software. And like, sure, and if you call sure. it software, it's not as, it doesn't have this kind of like doomsday quality to it. It's just like, it, it feels more normal and, and, and less like we have to choose between, you know, a, 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 a po- like a big brother future and one that isn't. And, and I totally agree that like, um, uh, that, you know, that, that software and, and, and artificial intelligence, machine learning have like, you know, are, are doing amazing things in the world. And, and like, you know, when I think about like, you know, my book has a lot of skepticism about tech and about Sil- Silicon Valley yeah, as it's yeah. constructed, but I am like super optimistic about tech too, because like, you know, we just lived through, you brought up drug development and like the development of these, um, of these vaccines, uh, and now you know, a pill, so, theoretically, and right? a pill, yeah, yeah. faster, you know, uh, basically doing this, you know, faster than had ever been, 
you know, that at the beginning of the pandemic, everyone was like, oh, this is going to take five to 10 years. And we got it, you know, and, and they got it done in a year. And like, and and that's a credit both to like politics and and political will and, and you know, Operation Warp Speed and so on, but also, you know, uh, science and, and in particular science powered by by the, the technologies that we've developed over the course of, you know, the last 70 years. Max, I'll tell you, it's so interesting. It, it sounds like getting to know you a little bit over this interview, you you have ended up in a very similar place to me, which is like in the middle. It's like, I see the bad side, I see the good side, and I'm not sure I'm going to go live off the grid in the woods right now. So here we are. What do we do with it, right? Uh, before we leave you at crypto, um, and let's talk about blockchain technology. We've been diving into Web3 a little bit on this podcast. Um, any thoughts on how far off that is? And again, the changes that we should be preparing for as leaders. So I feel like we were talking earlier about okay, well, what? How do you fix the things that are broken with um, with uh, social media with with these big technology companies, Facebook and Google? And obviously, like one answer to that is you know decentralization. Like you could create, and there are people trying to do this right now. You know, basically the equivalent of of Facebook, you know, on the blockchain or something, where where instead of being tied into this one network that's controlled by um, you basically like a corporate dictator, you know, Mark Zuckerberg controls Facebook, it controls the board, and um, you know, is is not it's 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 decentralized, and there and and you would have sort of different ways different ways to like reach audiences and stuff like that, um, and that would be enabled by by, by blockchain. Um, and in the same way, I guess you could think like crypto is like a decentralizing force in finance, where instead of these big banks um, and, and uh, financial gatekeepers, you you know you have kind of a, a free for all. And I think um, that's pretty cool, right? I, like I, I'm as somebody who you know has followed you know the history of open source, and you know like it's like that those ideas have been kind of floating around the internet basically and Silicon Valley almost since the beginning. Um, the thing is though, they've lost every time. So like, <laughs> so, uh, so like maybe, and maybe web three will be different. Um, and of course there are ways, right. That they didn't lose that, you know, like, like, they're, like, like there's WordPress always is open source issue. And... Right. There's, you know, the, the, the sort of forces of decentralization have sort of been fighting against, you know, corporate centralization and, you know, monopoly capitalism or whatever you want to call it, pretty much since the internet has been around and and even before then, you know, where you had like open source software versus Microsoft or or whatever. Um, and and I think you can it's not like uh even if like Facebook or somebody ends up owning a lot of like Web3, like you, you maybe you would still have a lot of value created and 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 you still achieve some of these goals. But I do think that's the you know, the risk and, and like the, the, you know, with, with crypto, of course, like, um, right now, like mainstream, you know, banks and stuff are, are of course, you know, pushing into this world and, and they don't want, they're not just going to sit still and like, you know, let some random Dow and, you know, Goldman Sachs or whoever is not just going to like turn over, you know, the entire function of their business to like some, some dudes on the internet. And it's the same thing with, um, with Mark Zuckerberg, right? Like that's, and we see, we see it happening, you know, already where like Facebook is, you know, wants to do the metaverse and, you know, so, so I do think there's a, there's a real risk that, that these decentralized, decentralizing technologies, you know, just end up getting appropriated by, um, big companies. And that doesn't, mm. and maybe that's not even a risk, right? That, but the, but that ends up looking, you know, 
very different than than like kind of what the like ideologues or sorry what the people who really buy into like the ideologies um believe and what they espouse and so so i think that's going to be really interesting and and i also think like if you're trying to find some kind of way out some kind of way to have sort of like like sort of facebook like distribution without facebook then you know web3 offers a, a possible solution and it and probably most importantly right it offers competition because right now there's no competition to mm. to these kind of big monopolistic tech companies and and so maybe maybe in the end like these web3 things don't do everything that the the most you know, fervent believers think they're going to do, but but maybe they press you know Facebook and the and the and these other players to be you know to 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 change and and hopefully that'll create you know new energy uh, that that'll make us all like enrich our lives and 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 make us all you know uh, happier, richer, whatever. Um, so I'm I kind of optimistic about that, and I also I'm also just sort of optimistic about this kind of like new culture. I mean, you know, it's mm. like like crypto is like an emerging, it's obviously it's a financial thing, but of course it's also like this weird cultural movement and like and I think that that's super interesting and I think the 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 prospect for like, you know, new things to be created, like it's it's always interesting. It's like what the technology industry is about and and I think um you know, we need to be smart about how we how we um how we meet those new structures and everything. And, you know, of course, like one failure, I think, um, of society, you know, in retrospect with kind of like Web 2.0, which is like, you know, Facebook and so on, was that we sort of, we were slow to see the ways in which they were, um, you know, breaking the rules, messing up society. And like, hopefully we will be quicker this time around to, to, to understand the ways that like crypto and, you know, obviously in crypto in some ways poses a threat to the global financial system. Like that's going to have to be managed. Um, and, and, um, these web three things probably will present threats to, you know, to social cohesion and all that stuff. And, and that'll have to be, you know, understood and managed and, and confronted in the long run. Well, this has been fascinating. Any final word on the future for leaders who are listening? I feel like we've kind of went in a lot of different directions and, in many ways, this interview has summarized the debate that's been going on in my head for years now. And yeah, there's no black or white. There's not like, uh, oh, here's the solution, right? It's just these are things we're navigating and we're doing it every day. Final word, Max? I feel like people um, tend to, uh, you say a lot of pessimism um, b about the future. Um, and, you know, uh, one of the things, like in the book, I, I talk about this, but Teal's famous for saying, you know, we we're promised flying cars, we got 140 characters. And it's kind of easy to look at, you know, the state of technology uh, in recent history and get depressed and like miss the things that actually are good and and miss the way, like, and, you know, you brought up one, right? Like drug development. And, um, but but there are lots of ways in which technology has like made our lives better. And that, and that like, we don't need to think, you know, we don't need to see the future um, and, and technology as being this kind of like unsatisfying, you know, mess. It's like, uh, it, you know, I don't know. There's just like so much potential and so much excitement. And like, you know, as, as, as like skeptical as I am of, a lot of stuff on the internet. Like every morning I go on the internet and I'm delighted and surprised and I learn new things. And so, um, and so I think it's like important to remember that, um, that there's still a lot of good to be discovered and, and built and, um, and experienced. Well, whether you like it or not, we're here, right? Here we are. We, we got to lead and live in this context. So Max, 
Uh, you write for Bloomberg and uh, tell us a little bit more about the book and where people can connect with you online. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm a, a writer, editor at Bloomberg Businessweek, uh, author of The Contrarian, uh, Peter Thiel and Silicon Valley's Pursuit of Power. And you can buy that, you know, wherever books are sold. Um, and uh, I'm on Twitter uh, at Chafkin, C-H-A-F-K-I-N. Um, and um, you can find me there. Happy to, to engage further uh, if anyone has questions or whatever. That's oh, fantastic. Max, can't thank you enough for taking time for our leaders today. Thank you. Thanks, Gary. Well, you can get more on this episode and the whole future series by heading over to the show notes. You can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 473. And we have transcripts there. We've got insights. We've got quotes you can share on social. We want to get in your corner and help you with that. Also, hey, if you haven't yet headed over to the Art of Leadership Network, We've got a series of podcasts now that are part of this brand new podcast network. We've got Jenny Katrin, Brad Lominick, Chris Cook, Jeff Henderson, Shane Benson, David Farmer, Kevin Jennings, Exponential, and Sean Morgan. You can find them all at theartofleadershipnetwork.com or just search The Art of Leadership Network wherever you listen to your podcast. Uh, but the easiest place, theartofleadershipnetwork.com. Also want to thank our partners for this episode. Go to leader.com and use the promo code CARRY to get 20% off your first year of their people development software. That's L-E-A-D-R.com and use the promo code C-A-R-E-Y. And then have you registered yet for Remodel Health's free webinar on how to save money on healthcare and give your employees better benefits. It's the 401k of health benefits. Go to remodelhealth.com slash webinar. That's remodelhealth.com slash webinar. Well, uh, some fascinating episodes coming up with the future series in the past. That kind of sounds contradictory, but, but we're going to move on to regularly scheduled programming. Uh, we've got, who have we got? We've got Philip Yancey. Oh my goodness, that conversation. I can't wait to bring it to you. Jenny Allen, Ian Morgan Cron, Bob Goff, Dave Hollis, and next time, Michael Bungay-Stanier. He is someone I got to know through a friend and a fascinating guy. His coaching habit book has been called the de facto book on coaching your teams. He sold over 1 million copies. And uh, well, his book has been called the best coaching book of the century. It's a pretty wide ranging interview. I went down to Toronto and uh, we recorded it. And uh, here's that's where he's based out of uh, very close to my house. And uh, we didn't know each other until this. So this was a fun conversation. Listen in. What if, what if you got the wrong goal? Aren't you? It's like <laughs> ISO 900. You're like, I've, I've got a high quality thing that's wrong. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want that. I want people to claim ambition for themselves and for the world. I want them to have permission to be ambitious for what they want. But I don't want it just to be about them. I want them to serve the world. I want them wow. to give more to the world than they take. That's an excerpt. And uh, wow, I think you're going to love next episode. If you're new to the podcast, hey, please subscribe. And do subscribe to the Art of Leadership Network. All right, that's wherever you find your podcasts. And when you do that, you can find, uh, well, all the shows we've mentioned and announced today. So thank you so much for listening. And uh, can't wait to do this again next time. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.